Hello, everybody. Welcome to Quantum Witch Cafe. Today, I have the honor of hosting Jeff Kripal. He's an amazing author. And if you don't know who he is, I will have him introduce himself in a minute here. But first off, thank you to anybody listening on YouTube or Anomalous Podcast Network. Please leave some reviews, follow, share, subscribe, and all that good stuff. And I also have uh, Jeff's info in the description. So if you're looking for his website and stuff on him, it'll be there. But welcome to Quantum Witch, Witch Cafe, Jeff, today. Um, I'm very excited to have you. I created this space to discuss anything paranormal, strange, fringe, UFO, UIP, if you're fancy, you know. So when I when I heard, when you reached back out to me after I emailed you, I was like, oh my goodness, like this is like the perfect person for this channel because yeah. you know all that stuff. So um, thank you and thank you again for joining me this early morning. I see Kat in the chat. She's amazing. So thank you, Kat, for showing up so early. And sir, oh, sorry, Jeff. <laughs> so, I uh, Give us your bio for those people that might be listening that don't know who you are. Um, please tell us who you are, what's your motivation, and why are you doing what you do? Yeah, so um, by training, I'm a, what we call a historian of religions. I, I compare religions or I compare religious systems. And I'm also, I'm, historically, I'm really interested in religious experiences, particularly of the extreme sort. So out-of-body out experiences, near-death experiences, UFO encounters, that kind of thing. Um, I, I'm an academic. I mean, I'm, I'm a professor. You know, if I'm the guy or the, the woman in your college classroom asking you to read a lot of stuff. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a bibliophile. I love books. I think books are magical, literally magical. Um, in my day job, I work as a university administrator. I'm an associate dean at Rice University in Houston, Texas. And I'm trying very hard to essentially mainstream or integrate anomalous phenomena into the humanities in particular in the universities and colleges. That's really what I'm up to, Priscilla. That's really what motivates me. It's really an intellectual, professional project. Um, <clears throat> but I also am like super, super interested in public cultures and the way that these ideas are talked about in the public or or more likely not talked about. Um, and so I'm really interested in podcasts and I was really interested in your show when you showed it to me uh, first. So I, I I think this is the way to do this is to talk to as many people as, as one can and try to expand and, and integrate the conversation in as broadly a fashion as possible. Absolutely, thank you so much again for um, saying that. And also, yes, we have a lot of a lot of things coming out in the open. Um, as far, I mean, it's not complete like disclosure like people want. Like people want to know what's the afterlife. People want to know are ghosts real. People want to know are UFOs <laughs> here. People want to know who are the occupants, and that people are. But there's a whole other camp of people that are in shock that our government's even speaking of uh, unidentified, you know, anomalous phenomena. So um, I think that we've made like a big jump just in the past couple of years, honestly, in talking about stuff like this. Cause when I was little, I'm 38. So I wasn't, I was in Catholic school when I saw my first UFO. I try to tell people I got sent to the principal's office. Like it was not spoken of. And don't you dare mention that, you know, um, maybe in Ezekiel there's a UFO, <laughs> you know, it's just, 
people um, are finally coming out of that, but some parts of the world are still very, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, conservative, maybe. <laughs> but yes, I think that your work is great. And I had a teacher in University of Alaska where I studied uh, molecular biology at, and I almost switched to her um, humanities because religion has always like fascinated me. And I, and I always would joke like, oh, like if I think that I can make money in uh, studying religion, I would. And then I meet you and Diana this year and or make a living, not like try to be, you know what I mean? Like right. I didn't know that there was a job like this in all honesty, because I have, you know, my, I was the first one to go to like university on my side. So I didn't really know what was out there. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm from Nebraska, Priscilla. And generally the public is completely unaware that um, you can study religion in a way that that isn't isn't particularly religious, but also isn't particularly debunking. It's 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 a really interesting middle space where you can explore practically anything. And but it's unknown. You know, nobody, yeah. as I say, nobody grows up wanting to be a professor of religion. That that would, <laughs> that would be one weird kid. Um, <laughs> There's, they're probably out there. You're somebody. Your listeners are probably right. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I'm like, yeah, you're weird. But that, that's yeah. Crazy. I mean, from the second I could read, I was, I had my encyclopedia, my grandma's encyclopedia, and I looked up religion and researched every religion under religion. So I think secretly, I was not. I mean, people know I was weird. Like people used to call me Wednesday, like Wednesday Adams, at Catholic school. So uh -huh. Uh -huh. I was definitely one of those weirdos. But, <laughs> but. <laughs> it's great that you're bringing this out and trying to bring it to universities because a lot more people are interested than we'll talk about it because of the stigma. Um, it's okay to talk about biblical stuff, right? Like people are comfortable with that. They're they're comfortable with the mysteries in the Bible. No, they're not. <laughs> oh, they're they're comfortable talking about the Bible in traditional biblical terms. They're not they're not ter they're not terribly welcome or warm about discussing the biblical text the way you know a scholar of religion or a a biblical critic might so it's i think i think the relationship between these phenomena and the religions is fascinating priscilla and i think it's really important they're not the religions are generally not super friendly to these phenomena and yet they all use them you know for their own their own ends or their own their own um, goals so i it's complicated it's 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 not a an up or down kind of thing it's it's a both and yeah, so that makes a lot of sense. And I've often thought that myself, but um, I don't, it's not necessarily something, I really have to feel bold that day to bring it up on the playground with the other moms. <laughs> 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 Normally they're like, like, like the, you know, the, the part of the movie where the record stops and the music stops and yeah. it makes that sound. I swear I hear that in my head like so many times a day. And then my husband's supported, but I talk to him and he gets like that. Like he goes to his happy place. He glazes, he glazes, he glazes over. <laughs> yes, I mean, yes. it's, the, it's the same in, in a college <laughs> university. Trust me. It's just like, and it's all, yep. all over. So you got to find ways. That's, that's <laughs> what I do is I try to find ways to talk to people who otherwise wouldn't listen. Yes. And that's why that's the whole reason behind um, me creating this podcast because I got tired. I didn't know anybody in UFO land. Um, I wasn't a cool kid. So I'd see these panels of like predominantly men. And I was like, I'm never going to get in there because they've talked to all these famous people. 
I'm, I'm just like, you know, I not, I didn't finish my degree. I'm not using my degree. I don't have any letters with me. I don't have any certificates. I have a Reiki certificate, <laughs> so, but I, you, know, you know, I've studied energy work, but that doesn't necessarily sit well with nuts and bolts UFO researchers at times. Um, so, you know, I'm just, I created the podcast in hopes to interview any author that would say yes on anything strange. So, um, but, well, I hope, uh, I hope you keep speaking out and I hope, I hope you talk to those mothers on the playground and I hope you sit on those panels, Priscilla. That's what, thank that's you. what we need. Thank you. Thank you. I'm starting to get a good panel with uh, the UFP book club that I started. So um, every month we pick a book that's related to the UFO UIP phenomenon and or I, I would say phenomena because it's so much more than just one thing. Yeah. Um, and I'm getting some people in there. So it's a, uh, it's progressing and it's kind of like, my time people talk about self-care like shopping all this other stuff like this is my um this is my outlet because in my heart i'm an academic like i would study forever if i could and you you talk about oh i'm that teacher that gives you the books like i was that nerd that loved the books <laughs> so well, you you were the the one of the three people in the classroom who <laughs> wanted to learn <laughs> exactly exactly and also I'm older too. Like, so when I was in college, I started at 30. So well, I started at 26 and I had to spread it out because of working. So I think that I was older. I'd had like the fun hairdressing career and, you know, service industry. And I was serious when I went. So, but yeah. I wanted to, oh, I'm go so ahead. sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. I was just um, going to say, you know, there's this saying that education's wasted on the young and, um, there's some truth to that. I mean, the truth is, is that our culture only allows for this four-year gap between 18 and 22 generally. But adults who come back to school, particularly around philosophical questions or religious questions, they're actually um, way more interesting as a teacher, frankly, because they have questions. And they don't believe they're immortal anymore. I mean, at 18, you yeah. think you think you're immortal. Yeah, right? you just go do stupid things. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you should. That's great. That's great. You're 18. You you should do that. The the old hormones are are, are surging. But, <laughs> you know, by the time you've experienced some life, you you realize things are not so simple. Yes, absolutely. So I wanted to ask you about your paranormal experiences. You had mentioned an amazing experience that you had in India um, when you went for one of the goddess uh, celebrations. Did you? I don't know if you were there for that or if you were there, there during that time. Um, are you comfortable talking about that experience? Well, I've I've written about it so many times. I, yeah, I, I, so <laughs> I still I, ask. You know, like yeah, sometimes I, people aren't I in the mood. Talk so. about it. it's, it's pretty pathetic, actually. Um, yeah, so that's was... pathetic. Stop because the more people need to talk about this, like their experiences the way that you have. And I know you have, but yeah. I always ask because, like I said, some people don't want to revisit that day or they're not, like I said, there's some people just aren't in the mood to do it, you know, at times. Yeah. Yeah. So that event. So, first of all, I'm not, I don't experience myself as particularly gifted in this area. I, I describe myself as a spiritual dud. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm sincere about that. I, I think I think I'm pretty thick, um, and I've been around people who are just wired differently. They're open to these other worlds and these other experiences, and I, I'm just not that. However, I've had enough of these experiences um, to make me deeply sympathetic. Um, and so, when someone tells me about 
an NDE or an abduction event, I'm like, yeah, I get that. Um, so the one overwhelming experience I had was in Calcutta, actually, in 1989. It was in early November. It was during a festival called Kali Puja, which happens right around our own Halloween. And I think which most Americans would see as very Halloween-ish. <laughs> I mean, you have cut off heads and severed arms and cremation grounds. And I mean, the whole, I mean, it makes our Halloween look tame. Let me put it that way. <laughs> yes. Uh, and it's really cool. It's really cool. It's really beautiful too. There are all these, what are called pondals that are put all through the city and the goddess Kali and, and uh, standing on her husband Shiva is reproduced thousands and thousands of times and really gorgeous, gorgeous um, temporary art forms, uh, statues essentially, or, or murtis as they, as they call them. Um, so I was there studying um, Bengali, which is the, the language spoken in that part of India. I was doing my PhD at the University of Chicago. I was studying uh, a tantric or shakta form of Hinduism. Um, so I was in the midst, it was a year long, it was a year, an academic year I was spending there. And I got very, um, I got very ill actually in October, which often happens. Um, and I was probably recovering from that, but I was also attending all of these pondals or festivals in the city. And I went to bed and sometime early in the morning I woke up, but uh, my body didn't wake up. It was, it was my mind woke up, but my body was essentially paralyzed. And I felt this incredible energy. Uh, you talked about Reiki. I mean, this is sort of Reiki times a thousand. Um, I thought I was being electrocuted. I mean, it was so powerful. It was so overwhelming. It was also extremely erotic in a ways that probably shouldn't talk about. <laughs> um, but it wasn't just, it wasn't a, it wasn't like another dream or it, it, it had this palpable electric um, quality to it. And it started doing things to me. Uh, and it had its own agency. It had its own intention. I, again, personally thought I was dying. Uh, I may have been, actually. I talked to a cardiologist a few years ago, and he described a kind of cardiac event I was likely having. I was like, yeah, that that actually sounds correct. Um, but the experience was this incredible conscious energy that then um, imploded uh, into my heart region. And when it did, I had this experience of leaving my body and floating to the ceiling and and then eventually getting back into my body, I had to crawl back into my body from, from above it. And then I woke up and I could move my you know, body again. And I felt like there, there was this incredible kind of down, download was not a metaphor we had in 1989, by the way. It didn't exist. But, you know, to speak anachronistically, it felt very much like a download. Um, and I wrote my first book really out of that experience, a book called Kali's Child. And I've been kind of writing out of that experience ever since. Um, because I think, I don't think I know that a lot of scholars who write about these things have had these experiences and they're really trying to understand their own experiences, even when they're talking about someone else's. Um, and so that's what I do now, Priscilla. I, 
I talk to people who have had similar kinds of weird experiences and I try to take them seriously. I don't take them literally, by the way, nor do I take mine literally. Um, but I, I think we, I think we mistake or we do them injustice, frankly, when we interpret them literally. I think their images and their events are meaningful, but I, I don't think they're literally the case. Um, so that's a kind again, that's that third space I'm talking about, but that's really what opened me up to this. Um, it wasn't until years later, I didn't really get interested in this intellectually until about 15 years ago. I was writing a book on the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, and the, what's called the Human Potential Movement. And I started to talk to all kinds of people in that movement who told me really strange things. And I recognized all of these strange things from the religions I knew, but I had been trained to think that these things, that all of this was kind of legendary or was exaggerated to accrue power or authority or something. And I realized that these people were telling me the truth and that these, these things really happen. They happen today. And so I became really curious and a bit troubled by why um, intellectuals like myself don't listen to them and don't take them seriously and kind of dismiss them. And that's why I wrote Authors of the Impossible, by the way, was to try to understand how my own intellectual traditions had suppressed these things, even though in the late 19th and early 20th century, people like me were fascinated by these things and were right. And they, they actually made up all the words we use to this day. All the words we use, psychical, paranormal, psi, parapsychological, those were all coined by nerds like myself. Uh, none of those, none of those appeared in tabloids or in the popular press before they before they were coined. They all were coined in the universities. Yes, that's uh, that's very cool. And a lot of people do have experiences like that that you don't necessarily get to tell other people about because you had mentioned a couple of things that um, like the electric feeling. I try to describe that to people like almost like one of those uh, muscle stimulators was on my, my whole body. And the whole, um, you mentioned like the erotic feelings that people are kind of afraid to talk about um, <laughs> here. I don't know what it's like in other places of the world, but but oh, here it is, you know, um, very taboo to mention anything erotic without all these connotations automatically going to it that are put there by, uh, I guess, Western culture. Well, um, no, no, it's not just Western culture, unfortunately, Priscilla. I mean, all any culture really all cultures that I'm aware of put the damper about right there and prevent us, I think, from really understanding what's going on. It's the most human thing though. That's how we like, we're human, you know, like this is how we came into the world by these feelings happening. These even <laughs> chemicals, you know, happy no. hormones, sexy hormones, whatever you want to call them. It, it all feeds into like how you were created. It's your creation. So for it to be so um, bastardized by media and thinking it's only yeah. this two things, you know, um, like people automatically hear erotic, they think pornography. Um, and I don't think that, and you know, um, because I know that it, there's a deeper, um, there's a deeper experience with it um, that can be attained. Well, this is, frankly, this is where the humanities could really do a service. I mean, 
the Greek word eros really was seldom understood historically in a purely sexual or biological way. Um, the erotic, particularly in Plato, was a means towards achieving divinity. I mean, it's what you harnessed. It's what you rode to the platonic forms and had visions. So, the, you know, human sexuality wasn't, it wasn't just instinctual. It wasn't just biology. It, it had this kind of metaphysical force to it. And that actually was my early interest, Priscilla. I mean, I so I was raised Catholic too. I, I know you're, I know the whole Catholic scene. Um, I wanted to be a monk actually, and I went to a Catholic seminary and I spent four years there and I became fascinated by erotic forms of, of mysticism or mystical experience. And it turns out that particularly in Catholic, um, Catholic mystical theology, um, Eros and, and the experience of God are intimately linked. And men and women um, have both had erotic experiences of divinity. And I became really fascinated by that. And that's actually what took me to India, was that erotic, mystical um, confluence. Um, so, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. Of course, you're preaching to the choir. Um, yes. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm already there. Um, yes, yes. That's why I liked your work, too, because you um, were not afraid to talk about that. Um, at one point, I had was going to church a lot because I didn't know what else to do. I was kind of like at a, you know, in a sinkhole or kind of a, what is it? I don't even know how to describe it, but I started, I met a friend and I started going to church with them too um, because the loving energy was there. Well, I had at one point become very curious about the Holy Spirit. So I started studying the Holy Spirit. And at one point I had gone up during one of the, um, there was like a nighttime kind of like singles type of uh, church thing happening. And I went up to receive prayer and the anointing and you know how they say you fell out in the spirit? Well, it fell out in the spirit and I'd had and had that electric sensation, but what I felt too was almost like a whole body orgasm. And I know that sounds very people a lot of people are like, oh God, you said orgasm. You know, like, but it felt like that energy just going through your whole body. Um, and there's no other way to describe it the way that it felt. And um, that's not something I was able to tell anybody at church. Um, which I obviously left because I was like, I, I think I'm a witch still. Like <laughs> I've been back and forth between like witchiness and, and you know, I but I've had beautiful experiences with energies that are associated with Christianity too. So it's hard to say what I am, but you know what I mean? You can't talk about these things at well, church. Yeah. No, a couple things. One is what you learn by reading enough mystical literature is that this this sort of orgasm that you're talking about, is, they're, all, they're often pansomatic, by which I mean, they're not focused in the genitals. There's yes. a kind of full body um, orgasmic ecstatic state that isn't actually sexual in any kind of right. genital sense, um, but it's clearly related to one's sexuality and to one's gender and sexual orientation and everything else. So that that's really important. The second thing I'll say is, um, you know, whenever I sit down and talk to uh, an experiencer, I'm always waiting to hear two things. The first thing is I'm waiting to hear about trauma. Uh, and there's usually some trauma, some serious trauma in the person's life. It could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be sexual, it can be 
military, by the way, it can be a car accident. I mean, it can be any number of things. Um, and the second thing I'm listening for is, is sexuality because a lot of these experiences are suffused with, with a kind of erotic energy that the person is very aware of, but also embarrassed by. Yes. Yes. And, um, I see it certainly as our role to not be embarrassed by those things. That's part of the experience because we're never going to integrate them into our public culture if we don't talk about them. Exactly. They're just going to they're just going to stay dirty secrets as it were. And the only reason they're dirty secrets is because we don't talk yeah. about them. Exactly. Cuz nothing dirty is happening. Yeah. I'm not no. rolling in mud. I mean, you know no. what I mean? <laughs> I, know, I know what you mean. But, you know, they're often hypersexual in really really dramatic ways. Oh yeah. Um and so people just don't know what to do with that. But again, that's part of that's part of our cosmic life, I think. And um, so, yeah, my work's filled with those, actually. If you read some of my earlier works, earlier stuff, it's it's nothing but that. <laughs> that yeah. So. yeah, I thought I laughed when I was reading. I was looking to, like, make your bio for the description. It's like his controversial work. I'm like, I guess technically it is. But at the same time, I'm just so I just like roll my eyes because it's part of yeah, I've just always been very, um, and you know, maybe exposed to things I shouldn't have been exposed to at a young age. But that kind of made me view the world differently. And I'm not just talking the UFO stuff. So, um, yeah. it, like you said, though, um, it a lot of people have these experiences during key points in their life, right? Um, just people I've met personally um, throughout my life, because people seem to come to me with their experiences because they know, even before I had this, you know, per personal friends would be like oh, I had this experience last night and I know you're not going to think I'm crazy. I had this dream, but it was real. And I had sleep paralysis, but I can't explain it as normal sleep paralysis, you know? So, but they've all kind of been in a transition in their life when yeah. they have it, um, whether it be um, usually, like you said, it's trauma or it's processing. They go back, they're processing a trauma that happened a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and I found that really interesting when you mentioned that because it's it does happen. And we've even talked about it in other podcasts, like, somebody asked me and I didn't make the link. They're like, well, was anything going on in your life when you saw those things when you were five? And I was like, actually, yes. Now that you mention it, but I had never made that link. And then after that, I started remembering everything people had come to me with and experiences in my own life and the life of others that they were in some sort of, um, I don't want to say low. They were seeking, well, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, so, so I think of the human person, so I think of you and I think of me as a kind of uh, biological organism that is containing, it's a container and it, 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 it contains consciousness or, or awareness, but actually consciousness or awareness is, it extends far beyond our bodies and far beyond our personalities. And it's, it's, it's everywhere. The universe itself is conscious in, in this model. And so what trauma does or what trauma can do is it can split open that body, brain, ego container, opens up the container and other forms of consciousness can essentially rush in. That's a crude metaphor, but it, what it does for me is it helps me understand why something really bad, trauma, can result in something really good. And so if you take something take the near-death experience mm -hmm. 
okay you don't get a near-death experience unless you fucking almost die yes <laughs> right i mean it's traumatic by by definition, oh, yeah. by definition. yes and that's really important because you're being i think in the heart attack or the surgery or the car accident or whatever it is you're you're being split open and and you're realizing that who you are or what this awareness is is much bigger than just the body brain that it happens to be localized in at the moment. Yes, absolutely. And I learn. I mean, I think when you're a spiritual person, you kind of know this without having words for it. Um, and when I took a priestessing training, we learned about this thing and it's exactly what you said, energetic contraction, when a trauma happens that your energy kind of either expands out and then it almost like, I always see like in my head when this happens to people, because when people are talking to me, I get like, I don't want to say visions and make it sound weird, but I get visions in my head like um, of um, their symbolic type of visions. And I'm very like uh, empathic. So I'm almost like, it's almost like they put me into their, uh, their story. Cause when people talk about stuff like this, they go back. It's, it's like they travel back in time because they're there. You see the look in their eyes. They're there telling you this. And um, I had a woman that I met one time at a brunch. And for some reason, I did. I just ended up across from her. And I don't even know how it came up, probably because I'm a weirdo and I bring up weird things. But uh, she ended up telling me how her fiance passed away unexpectedly. She had an out-of-body experience. Mm -hmm. And she's explaining these feelings that are happening to her. And I was like, you had you know, energetic trauma. And obviously emotional, mental trauma. But from an energy standpoint, I saw her energy going out. And she, like, when it snapped back in almost, she left her body and saw herself crying on the floor. Now, that's, I've never, I've never met anybody that has had, like, out-of-body experience like that until I met her. Um, and I found it really interesting because of that, that energy shift that I learned about in, in priestessing. Did she did she participate in the the death of her fiance in some way? I mean, did, was she there? No, no. So she she was um he was a motorcycle rider um and a biker, otherwise known as a biker. <laughs> I say things weird, guys. Um, so he went out for a bike ride. Um, the weather was nice, kind of thing. She's like, I don't know, you know, like we we have other things to do, kind of thing. He's like, I'm just gonna go for a quick ride. And that's what happened. Um, she got a call like a few hours later and um, I see. found out that he had passed uh, yeah. very suddenly. So, Well, people do have um, what, what, what's generally called empathic near-death experiences. In other words, they experience the death of a loved one, you know, in extraordinary ways. But they themselves, of course, don't die. Um, they come back and talk about it. So I didn't know if that's what we were talking about. But. Yeah, that's interesting too. Um, I just never met anybody that had. I I know people that have had other types of out of body experiences, but she that one was really interesting to me because, um, and she felt like he was her soulmate. So the fact that like from an energy thing, like she's telling me, like she felt him ripped away. Basically, she got like so many people do before the phone call get that feeling. She's like you yeah. know describing. I yeah. just knew something was going to happen. Um, I had this feeling, and then the phone rang, and I I knew I knew that. It was because of him. Right. And I don't even know. How do you explain that to somebody? You know, I'm, I read about this stuff and like none of us understand it, even if you study it. And so how do you help somebody through that? That isn't even 
that this sort of stuff's not even on their radar until it happens to them. The Yeah, I mean so I think extraordinary things happen to people though for a reason. And I think often it's to comfort them or to guide them or to provide some meaning to their lives. I, I don't think they're random. And I, I mean, we can always choose to ignore the, these things too, but I think we do that at a, a real loss. Um, yeah, that makes sense. She's, she's told me that um, you're the first person that I've uh, told this to. And afterwards she was just like, I need to step away. Not because I don't like you, but um, that just all came out of me and I can't explain it, you yeah. know? And, and I understood um, yeah. understanding, you know, people's from a woo standpoint, energetic field and all that. So um, you also spoke of uh, when you were talking to, about Whitley Strieber in one of your interviews, and I want to say it was, I have the note here. Um, Jeffrey, you were talking to Jeffrey Mishlov about Whitley Strieber and you said something about um, him kind of like being a shaman almost. And can you explain to people what a shaman actually is? Because a lot of people think shaman and they think Hollywood, some guy with, you know, shells on his neck and drum, you know, by the yeah. fire. Yeah. Yeah. No. So the category or the word shaman, it actually comes from anthropology, um, the study of different and many cultures. Um, the word itself um it comes from far northeastern Mongolia, I believe. And it, it generally refers to a person in a culture who interacts with the other world, um, sometimes through drumming or dance, sometimes through the ingestion of psychoactive plants. Um, but generally, shamans are experts in possession, in out-of-body travel, helping people heal in their community by working with them on a kind of spiritual level. Um, so it's the sort of the mediator between the other world and the social world in cultures all over the world. And we, it, in the word itself, again, is, is Mongolian, but we now use it to talk about shamans really almost in any indigenous culture that we encounter. Um, people might be familiar with the earlier words, witch doctor, or medicine mm -hmm. man, these are really bad uh, descriptors of similar kinds of functions in these societies. Um, so shaman is not a negative word at all. It, it, it's, um, it's fairly positive actually in, in anthropology. What I said about Whitley, um, whom I know well, and I've been around a lot, he's one of these people who's just wired differently. Um, and I describe Whitley often as a shaman in a culture that has no shamans. Yes. So if you're in an indigenous culture and it already recognizes shamanic abilities to leave one's body and to interact with the spirit world, then of course you become a shaman <laughs> and you know, you, you are essentially valued as, as a, as a key member of the community. But in Western secular scientific culture, we don't recognize any of these things. And so when Whitley has these experiences, uh, you know, people just shake their heads or they roll their eyes or they make fun of him because the culture has doesn't recognize shamanic realities or shamanic abilities. That's what I meant, Priscilla. Yes. Said okay. um, but he reminds me, I mean, I'm not an anthropologist, but of course I know many and, and I, trust me, I mean, weird things happen around Whitley on a really regular basis. And 
if he were in an indigenous culture, he would be the community's shaman. I have no doubt about that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And a lot of people have experiences, whether it be UFO or a spirit visitation or a religious experience um, with a deity or God, you know, whoever you're working with at the time, I guess, or curious about or whoever approaches you in some cases, but it's, um, it's so hard for people, you know, to integrate that into this life right now. And that's one of the reasons I like to have experiencers on. And like you said, with Whitley, there's a, there would be a place for him, but here, unless you're in this community, you, there's not a place for him in everyday life. And that's very troubling to me because more people are having these sorts of experiences and opening up doors to other, you know, what they call paranormal activity. So the, one of the meta, it's, it's a, it's a metaphor or a parable, but it, it really is useful here. So in the 17th, say 17th century France, let's just pick 17th century France. So farmers were constantly telling um, city dwelling intellectuals that rocks fell from the sky and they saw them. They saw them fall out of the sky and they would land in their fields. And I mean, they saw the holes they made and everything. And the city intellectuals, or, or there, there wasn't even a word scientist yet, by the way, but they would just make fun of these dumb farmers because, oh my God, stupid, stupid farmers. You know, rocks can't freaking fall out of the sky. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, but it turns out they can. <laughs> <laughs> and what, once we know what this thing called outer space is and that there's gazillions of big rocks and little yeah. rocks, and, and some of them enter our atmosphere and guess mm -hmm. what, fall in people's fields or on people's houses. Oh, um, my gosh. <laughs> suddenly, suddenly the meteorite, as it came to be called, was a was a possible thing. It was a real thing. And, of course, it was always it was always happening. But it was considered impossible by the culture, and so people who reported those things were made fun of. I we're not; it's not the same kind of space we're in now because not everybody can see a ghost or a UFO or have a near-death experience. It's not like a meteor falling out of the sky. But these things are so common and so widely reported that you know any kind of honest reader or observer just has to say, well, they happen. I don't know what's going on, but it, these things clearly happen. And what we, so what we need now, Priscilla, I, I think is not more strange stories, although that, those help. I, I'm a big fan of strange stories, but more strange stories isn't going to get us where we want to go. What we need is a model or a culture that can make sense of those strange stories and say, Yes, they're possible. Yes, rocks fall out of the sky. And here's why, you know? So until we get to that place, I, you know, I think people are going to just keep shaking their heads and people like Whitley or yourself or, or myself are going to feel, you know, like we're on the margins of, of, of the worldview and not, you know, not, not a real part of it. Yeah. And a lot of people do feel that's a perfect way to put it because we're just uh, a lot of people that have these experiences are observing the world differently after that. And that's the best way I can describe it. I don't think anybody can describe it specifically or to a like, you know, 
a science yet, um, but I did but ask I you. Priscilla, I don't think science will get us there. I mean, please hear no. me. This isn't like a meteorite. We're, no. we're talking <laughs> about science here, but we're talking about a different worldview that that essentially makes these impossible things possible. Worldview in some ways is so much bigger than science because it, it requires you to I hope so. I hope so. Uh, not have something in your hands, like physical, you know, it requires everything from you. Mm -hmm. um, for us, I should say, for the worldview. Um, like what would be the worldview that would make some sense of your, you know, orgasm experience of the Holy Spirit? I mean, that, that just makes no sense, you know, in most people's worlds. And so they're just going to say, they're just going to be reductive about it, or they're right. just going to be, um, they're going to roll their eyes. But it happened. Those things happen. So let's let's develop a worldview in which they can happen, and 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 then you know someone like yourself will feel more comfortable talking about it. How do you see that happening? How what are steps? that we could take as a society to start building this. And I mean, I know society may not be ready. They're more ready to hear about whether or not some celebrity got plastic surgery this week or not. You know, they're, they're not, they're going like they're out. They're still very, I hate to say they, I know I sound like an alien or something, but I, they, I feel like most of society and people that I meet that are not in my little community here. Um, it's all about like the physical things in reality in their reality that they can touch, see, and, you know, that sort of thing, like um, material gain, stuff like that. Uh, and you want to talk to people about what they're feeling in their heart or soul and what they actually believe, like, in their, um, as, a, as a deep level human, not as, like, a physical human. And they get very uncomfortable with that. So how can we start, you know, how can we start planting these seeds? Well, I think, you know, I mean, I think that's what you're doing here, right? That's yes, what but I want your, your, <laughs> <laughs> well, my, so my answer, I, I mean, I think we all work from where we're at Priscilla and I happen to be an academic. I'm in a university, so I'm going to work there. And I, th I think we have to build structures and not just people to put it bluntly. In other words, we have to build institutions and structures that will outlast individuals like yourself or myself. Um, I mean, and so take something like parapsychology. Essentially what's happened in, with parapsychology in the universities is it's ridden on the backs of very charismatic individuals like J.B. Ryan, and it lasts for a generation, and then that person retires or dies, and the university just sucks the money back and it disappears. Mm. What what we have to do is create a structure or an institution like a church or a department or an institute or something that will outlast and be able to reproduce itself over many generations. That's essentially what I think we need to do. And when people ask me, you know, I, I, again, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm trying to do in a university. But when people ask me, okay, how can we really help Jeff? My answer is always, and, I'll, I'll, and I'm not, don't take this personally, but I'll say we need lots of money. No, and, it's true though. And I mean, I mean lots. I don't mean a thousand dollars. I mean a hundred million dollars. And we need to seed some kind of broad cultural project um, that will 
that will get traction and people can't ignore it, you know, something like the Apollo moon program or the human genome project, or, you know, there, there are any number of precedents one could point to here that actually did something. And actually we still remember and still make movies about and still talk about. I think that's what we need to do, Priscilla. We need to think really big and on a kind of broad cultural level. Yes, because it's definitely broad. And we see these in different belief systems around the world and different people around the world. There's all these like similar underlying themes that people spiritually well, sort of believe, I guess. So let me just say, so religion is one of these human institutions that's figured out we better do this generationally, right? Mm -hmm. So the religious institutions have figured out a way to take these anomalous phenomena, embed them in a set of beliefs and rituals that then can carry on from generation to generation. The problem, of course, is those religious traditions then end up believing that they have all the goods yeah, and that all the other religious traditions or cultures are wrong. Okay, so that's that's not going to work anymore. That yeah. that worked in our past, but it's I don't think it's going to work in our future. But we need something like that. Um, yes. It's not that we. It's not that we want to be against religion, but we want a different kind of religion or a different kind of spirituality. I think one that's a lot more flexible and a lot more capacious and a lot more generous and inclusive. Um, so that that's my answer. I'm just blabbing now, but that no, no, it's great. <laughs> it's because there's not an answer. So I think that the answer it's, it's almost like a brainstorming thing. You know, you have to talk about it um, and maybe you'll get, maybe something will come up that you haven't thought, you know, here, here, here's another, here's another example. I'll tell, I, I can talk about. So years ago, about 10 years ago now, I hosted a four-year symposium series on the paranormal and popular culture in Big Sur at Esalen. And we invited a number of people from Hollywood or, or Los Angeles up, filmmakers, special effects people, comic book people, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of individuals. And I asked them point blank, can you make a movie about the paranormal that does not involve people wearing tight spandex, punching each other, or blowing <laughs> shit up. And, you know, the answer was no. And I was like, why can't you make a movie that that is about a real person with real abilities, and you present the paranormal not as a piece of entertainment, but as a fact, as a just an aspect of our world. And why, why, why do you always have to give people this loophole to jump through? Of, right. This is just entertainment or this is just fiction. Why do you do that? And of course the answer was money. <laughs> oh, back to money. Yeah. And money makes people mad. It makes people happy. And it's a necessary <laughs> well, type of evil, right? Like their, their argument was, look, we know what works. We know what kind of movie makes yeah. money. And we know, we don't know if that kind of movie will make money. So we're not going to do it. How boring is that, though? Aren't you sick of seeing the same thing over and over and over again on TV? People give me crap about, oh, your books are reference books, or you don't watch this. I'm like, no, I, if I'm not learning something, like, 
if I'm not learning something, I don't really like it, you know? Don't get me wrong. I like all the spooky stuff. Like, we watch American Horror Story because it's weird. Like, I love all the weird, but that kind of is stand out a little bit from the other ones. But there's, like, this horror movie formula or this paranormal formula that it seems to, um, like you, like like they said, this plus this equals money. And one qu one second. Thank you for everybody that joined in the chat. And I will take a couple questions um, soon if he's okay. If uh yeah. Jeff's okay with that. Um, but go ahead and say what you were going to say. Well, so I think the paranormal is already a part of our culture. I, th I think film and television have actually done really excellent jobs of mainstreaming it, but it's a kind of halfway house. Um, people can still say, oh, that's just entertainment or that's just fantasy. They, they're still, we still haven't, you can talk about the paranormal as entertainment or you can talk about it as bunk. But you can't talk about it as an actual aspect of the human condition or the human experience. So it's not, I'm not, I'm all for these films and this television, but it's not enough. Um, and I think a lot of times those writers, well, I know this because I talked to some of them, they've had these experiences. You know, they're doing those shows because they know this stuff is real, but they can't talk about it as real. So they talk about it in the only way they're allowed to, which is in fiction. Yeah, storytelling, which is also an inherently human thing, right? Yeah, it's important. So um, before we get to, I see two or three listener questions, and I know we're getting close on the hour, but I wanted to ask you about how you said people are wired differently. Um, and Gary Nolan did that big study where he's studying the part of the brain that is yeah. different in people. Do you think yeah. that there's going to be um, any link between that? Even he says it's not going to happen in our lifetime, but it's almost like he's starting to lay, like he's starting to break ground on that research where maybe people do have morphological traits that make them more open to these certain types of experiences. What do you think about that? Well, I, first of all, I'm not a neuroscientist. Um, I know Gary. I know that work. I suspect, this is just a guess, that it will play out and that we will find neurological or, or um, brain, brain anatomical aspects that are different among experiencers and non-experiencers. What those are, I don't know. Um, I do, you know, I do think brain science or neuroscience is a bit like your, your cell phone or your smartphone. The, the danger is imagining that everything on your smartphone is because of your smartphone. You know, it's it's in forgetting about the Wi-Fi that makes yeah. smartphone work at all. And with some neuroscientists, Gary's not one of them, by the way, but with some neuroscientists, I worry that they they think it's all about the smartphone and that there's no Wi-Fi. Right, right. I, I I do worry about that. And but what they're what they're really studying is is kind of organic or chemical correlations. They're actually not, I doubt very much they're studying causes or mechanisms. Um, yeah. So that that's what I would say about all of that. We need people studying causes in the future. If you're listening <laughs> or if you're in school right now uh, for neuroscience, consider um, adding that into your study because it's controversial. You're not going to have any money for it, but it's, um, <laughs> you know, it's true. You do need money. People get mad at when people talk about money, like look at the, you cannot get around mm -hmm. the world or in this life without money. And if you're an academic, 
particularly neuroscience, by the way. You're talking yeah, you about to, hundreds of millions of yeah. dollars. We got to fund all this. Yeah, I, I was a, I had an internship at a biology lab or a virology lab in Alaska. And I remember we had to write little, um, we had to request money to do our little experiments, you know, and I only say little because it was, you know, um, undergrad level and I was working under an undergrad and a PhD and everything. But like, it was one of those things where um, you had to ask for money to, to do this science because just the chemicals involved with neuroscience, the tech, the equipment involved is just ridiculously, you know, and expensive. And then we're, those are, those are established. And with you talking about measuring like what's causing it or the what's causing the like the wi-fi of us which could be very well something like consciousness that doesn't exist so how much money does it cost to develop technologies that have never been developed before Is but notice but notice my metaphor it doesn't in any way deny the importance of of figuring out how your cell phone works right it, it the, all the science can stay the science it's all really valuable it just no longer pretends that it's studying the cause of 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 consciousness or the cause of, of the wi-fi your cell phone does not produce what the wi-fi right right <laughs> sorry it doesn't um you can throw it against the wall and break it or you know like someone gets in a car accident or has a heart attack mm -hmm. that doesn't say anything about the wi-fi it only says right. the receiver can't receive it anymore that's a great analogy. So I'm going to move to some listener questions or some watcher questions. I guess they're listening and watching if they're on YouTube right now. But um, the quest, one of Yanni's questions, who's an amazing person, by the way, she has a question about the book of Enoch. Um, she wants to know your thoughts on the book of Enoch and all three of the books. And she just recently started reading it. So I have no opinion about the book of Enoch. Um, I've, I don't know it. I'm not a biblical scholar. I suspect it's apocryphal. In other words, it's yes, it it's it's scrunched between the the Jewish Torah and the Christian New Testament. Um, it doesn't mean it's not important. It just means I I've never read it and I don't know anything right. about it. Okay, so um, James from Engaging the Phenomenon had mentioned that what you went through with your experience in India sounds very much like Kundalini awakening. Yeah. And that's more of a comment than it is a question. Um, do you feel like you can add to that? So, yes, I'm, it does, by the way. And that would have been the cultural framework in which I would have understood it in 1989. I think that's just one cultural framework. Um, I think your Holy Spirit um, or orgasm also probably has energetic components. Mm -hmm. That's another Christian. That's another theological framework. That's a Christian right. theological framework. So I think we can kind of jump around and use any number of frameworks to describe these these subtle uh, energetic or electromagnetic effects. But I I certainly do not privilege one of those over the other. I that's that's the only thing I would say. But yeah, it does. It very much sounds like such. Yeah. A and later on, after that experience, when I was reading more um, deep into, I went through my, I do yoga every day phase and I'm reading about Eastern religions part of my life after, well, that happened after my brother passed away. I had like another crazy experience. So this was like after that, but I started reading more into the Eastern philosophies and um, religions and beliefs. And I, I realized, wow, that's what that felt like too. So it's interesting yeah. that. I think, listen, we all regardless of what anybody says we all share the same biology and the same neurology so 
I think different cultures are like, you know, they're playing on the same keyboard. Yes. But they're playing different songs. <laughs> you know, so some some tunes are possible in one culture and not in another, but it's the same keyboard. Right. Um, so there's this kind of there's this kind of tough balancing of of cultural difference and 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 human human universality as it were. Yeah, and I try to tell people this. They're like, "So you're a pagan?" I'm like, "Well, no, there's like different energy streams that kind of are the same, but we have different names for them. Like yeah. um like a god named this in one in Greece might be something else in Egypt, but they represent the same um attributes or um archetype if if you know. So that's why I try to tell people like it's it's all of it. It's super weird, but it's all of it. Um, I have one more question and then we'll start closing up here. I want to keep your whole morning and thank you to everybody who's like, we're drinking coffee and listening to it. I love it. That's like kind of my dream come true because I named it cafe because I'm obsessed with cafes and coffee and deep conversation. So I like the fact that people are listening coffee and or listening to co drinking coffee and listening to this. Sorry, I should probably told you at the beginning. I do have ADD. So I like, like did I diagnose? So my brain is like in multiple directions all the time. <laughs> we have one more question. What do you think the future of comparativism is in light of the increase in scholarship? How can one not get lost in information, especially um, as we evaluate religious history? Which I think is a good question because so many times we're reading things and you're like, I don't know what to believe or to trust. So my answer is don't believe. Um, you know, I often say I, I I don't believe in beliefs. I believe in belief. Um, to answer John's question, um, I think we have to get to a point where we don't feel like we have to read every book and know every tradition. We, we have to arrive at some kind of model of what the human is that doesn't rely on yet another cultural framework or yet another language or yet another history. Um, and we cannot privilege our own culture or our own language or our own biographical history. I think that's what we generally do. Um, the future of comparativism, you know, I think is essentially how do we handle human diversity? How do we think about why people are so different? You know, Priscilla, you just invoked paganism. What you were really invoking was a kind of polytheistic comparativism. Right, where right. you compare different deities and different cultures as the same basic archetypes or the same or having the same basic function. That's an ancient polytheistic argument. And what the rise of monotheism did is it made that very difficult to do because right. now you have only one God and there are no other gods. And if you don't believe the right things, then bad things are going to happen to you. Yeah. So I think there's a deeper kind of conflict here between a kind of polytheistic imagination and a, and a monotheistic imagination. And I think the, the, the role of someone like myself or someone like John, if I think, I think I do know who John is, by the way, um, <laughs> um, is to tease out those, those implications or those structures and to make them more public so that people can say, Oh, that's what we're doing. You know, that's what we're really talking about. We're talking about whether we're thinking of reality as, as the one God or we're thinking about reality as multiple deities, you know, all participating in the same reality. That, that's a, that makes a huge difference. Yes. 
feel like one world feels so small because I've been on both sides. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and Priscilla, why? Why is why? Why you? And why me? I mean, what makes? Right. What, I mean, the, I, to me, the real mystery is why some people are so open to considering other ideas and worldviews, and most people are not. So there's there's going to be there's an answer there somewhere. There's a reason. I'm not right. saying I'm better or you're better. No, than, not at all. But I'm saying we are different because yeah. we're asking a set of questions that our, our families or our, our cultures in which we were born are not asking. Yes, or questions they wanted to ask but were afraid to ask because of the uh, political and social implications. And I, I will just add, I know we're out of time, but every religion that someone inhabits and thinks is the last word it began as a very small, often persecuted tradition in another culture. And over centuries and millennia, it became dominant. Uh, and it only takes really two generations to think that this is the way the world has always been. <laughs> and it's just not true. It's just, it's just not true. The world changes, you know, every, well, maybe every second, but certainly every every few decades. Yes. Um, so. Yeah. Um and um, do you have any closing thoughts on top of that? I'm sorry if I didn't get to all your questions. Um, it's I I don't like to keep guests too long because it's the weekend and all that stuff. Of course, we could we could talk to Jeff all day, but um, he has a life outside of this world or this podcast. So, um, do you have any closing thoughts? Any anything for people? Any seekers out there? Any advice to people just getting into this uh, this strange field of research or interesting no i mean my my only piece of advice is try to think about that third space you know it isn't just all about whether it it, it can be debunked or not or whether it can be believed or not there might be this other option where something's really happening it can't be explained away but you also probably shouldn't believe everything you know, there there is there is a nuanced kind of smart place in the middle that I think we should probably be trying to work toward. Um, so that that would be my my sort of parting thought is that third space. Well, thank you very much. Do you have any events coming up? We didn't even have time to get into the archives of the impossible and all that cool stuff. So, well, just no, Priscilla, but put the archives of the impossible link in the. Or wherever you put such things, yes. because we've uploaded the entire conference. Any oh, any of your listeners can listen to the any of the plenaries. They can watch any of the panels. And that's a YouTube, right? Uh, the yeah. YouTube. Okay, because I follow that, and I was catching up on some of it because I couldn't watch it all. It's all there. It's all there, and um, we're getting a lot of a lot of views and a lot of interest. And I think that's one way. Again, we can start to change the culture. Is just you know put stuff out. Absolutely. I'll add that to this to the description and I'll also put it in my link tree because there's a lot of amazing speakers there. And if you didn't get to watch any of it or just got to watch part of it, it's great that you know that they're all up again. Um, I want to say thank you to everybody listening again on either if you're listening to audio only on Anomalous Podcast Network. Thank you so much. If you're watching this later, thank you so much. Please like, subscribe, leave feedback. And there's other ways to support the channel in the description. And also, um, Jeff's website is or his link to his uh, Rice University website is in the description and I will add the archives of the impossible um, to that description as well. 
Jeff, hang out for a second. And uh, everybody, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your weekend or whenever you're listening to this. See you soon.